So here we are, we are continuing our way, slogging our way, if you will, through these middle chapters of Joshua. We're beyond the great miracles of the book, right? We're beyond everything that you think about when you think of Joshua, crossing the Jordan River, the walls of Jericho that came a-tumbling down, and indeed the sun standing still. We've gone from the miraculous to the mundane, death by details, land allotments, inheritances, names upon names upon names. And so we are mercifully moving through these chapters at a more rapid pace, but we're not skipping them completely. Because of our deep-seated conviction, along with Paul, that all of God's Word is useful that it's all been breathed out by God and that we can benefit from all of it, even the mundane and the overly detailed. I found this quote from the commentator Matthew Henry this week that he had written. I think specifically he wrote it when he was in Joshua 13, but it still applies here. We are not to skip over these chapters of hard names as useless and not to be regarded. Where God has a mouth to speak and a hand to write, we should find an ear to hear and an eye to read. And God give us a heart to profit. Let that be our prayer as we go through these chapters. So no, we're not going to skip over the tedious bits. We will survey them and we will glean what we can from them. And y'all, this week, I'll just be honest, I was a little nervous about these three chapters. Lord, what could possibly be here that would help us? But of course, I was very pleasantly surprised because it is God's Word. It is eternal. It is powerful. And so there's lots here for us. Four things that I want to share with you. Four things uh, basically just to draw your attention to in the text this morning that I think uh, are quite helpful, if not some of them a bit repetitive, we will find. But that's okay, too. It's almost as if God thinks we're slow to learn. We're quick to forget the way he keeps bringing things up again and again. So I've got selected verses from these three chapters. There's some mercy, right? Printed in the worship folder for you. They'll be projected on the screen, Lord willing. So I'd like to ask you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. We'll begin in Joshua 15 in the 13th verse. The very words of God. According to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, he gave to Caleb the son of Jephunneh a portion among the people of Judah, Kiriath Arba, that is, Hebron. Arba was the father of Anak. And Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai, the descendants of Anak. And now skipping down to chapter 16, verse 1 and following. The allotment of the people of Joseph went from the Jordan by Jericho, east of the waters of Jericho, into the wilderness, going up from Jericho into the hill country to Bethel. Then verse 4, the people of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim, received their inheritance. The territory of the people of Ephraim by their clans was as follows. The boundary of their inheritance on the east was Adaroth Adar, as far as upper Beth-Haran. And the boundary goes from there to the sea. Now skipping down to chapter 17, the first six verses. 
Then allotment was made to the people of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn of Joseph. To Machir, the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of Gilead, were allotted Gilead and Bashan, because he was a man of war. And allotments were made to the rest of the people of Manasseh by their clans, Abizar, Helech, Azrael, Shechem, Hefer, Shemida. These were the male descendants of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, by their clans. Now, Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, had no sons, but only daughters. And these are the names of his daughters, Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Terzah. They approached Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the leaders and said, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with our brothers. So according to the mouth of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among the brothers of their father. Thus there fell to Manasseh ten portions besides the land of Gilead and Bashan, which is on the other side of the Jordan. Because of the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance along with his sons, the land of Gilead was allotted to the rest of the people of Manasseh. And now finally, chapter 17, verses 14 through 18. Then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I am a numerous people, since all along the Lord has blessed me? And Joshua said to them, If you are a numerous people, go up by yourselves to the forest, and there clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim. Since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you, the people of Joseph said, The hill country is not enough for us. Yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron, both those in Beth Sheen and its villages and those in the valley of Jezreel. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, You are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. Even these words of God are inspired and inerrant infallible and for us they are authoritative so let's pray to the lord and let's beg of him for help in understanding them oh god would you help we lack wisdom and your word tells us that we should just ask of you and you will give it we lack discernment we lack eyes to see and ears to hear and only your spirit can give those things so holy spirit come and do what only you can do Give us eyes to see and, and hearts to, to process and, and even to possess all that is here for us. Help us, we pray. In Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. So the very first verses that we read... Give us a little update from last week. Last week, part of what we saw was in chapter 14, Caleb's very bold request when it came to what land he wanted. Right? He wanted the land where the giants still were. He wanted the land where the strong, fortified cities were that scared the folks to death when they were spying out the land. That's the land he wanted. He trusted God and His Word. He believed that God would do what he said. And so we see in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 15 here that he had great success. 
Caleb did exactly what he set out to do. The Lord was with him. The Lord did fight for him. And so there is a positive update from last week. Now, the next thing we're going to see from last week isn't as positive. All right, last week in chapter 13, we saw this instance of Israel not driving out the inhabitants of the land as they had been commanded. They sort of halfway did it. They partially obeyed, but the Geshurites and the Maacathites remain to this day, the text told us. Well, today we've got some repetition, I told you. Unfortunately, it's not repetition you really want to see, but we've got partial obedience, part two. And actually it's part two, three, and four, because in these three chapters, three instances of how Israel didn't do what God had told them to do. One each in chapter 15, 16, and 17. So I've got these for you. Joshua 15, 63. So this is Judah. Judah gets their inheritance. And here's tacked on at the very end, but the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. All right, so there's one. Joshua 16.10. All right, so here's Ephraim. Ephraim, they get their allotment. Tacked on at the end, verse 10 of chapter 16. However... They did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. So sort of a substitute obedience, if you will. We didn't drive them out, but we did make them our slaves, our servants. Joshua 17. So here's Manasseh. Manasseh receives their allotment. Tacked on at the end, or really kind of in the middle here. Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. Judah didn't obey completely. Ephraim didn't obey completely. Manasseh didn't obey Completely. Now, we speculated last week about some of the reasons, some of the possible reasons for what we called partial obedience, but as was pointed out in the 242 group I was a part of, right? Partial obedience is just disobedience with a nice name, right? Maybe they were lazy. Maybe that's why they didn't complete the task. You know, they, they started out strong, but y'all, it, it's hard work. And they just sort of sputtered and and gave out at the end. Maybe it was fear and doubt. We mentioned that last week. But perhaps, and we can kind of see in these, two of these three instances, uh, maybe there was some greed involved. Maybe there was some self... um, Maybe they were just looking out for themselves because with these mentions of using them as forced labor instead of driving them out... Right? How much help is somebody that you've forced to flee? Well, there's not a lot of help, frankly. But if you've kept them around and you've subjugated them and you've said, hey, you're going to work for us now, they could stand to benefit from that. Perhaps that was done. Maybe they had ease in their sights. And that's why they failed to fully obey the Lord. 
But one thing struck me out of these examples, and I had to wrestle a bit with it and do a little bit more reading on the, the, the chapter 15 and the chapter 17 reference seem to speak of inability, that they were, they were unable to do it. And so are they really to blame if, if they tried and they just didn't succeed? What do we do when we, when we try something and it doesn't seem to be working out? Right? Do, we, do we quit? Well, sometimes. Do we, do we wonder, hey, maybe I'm barking up the wrong tree. Gosh, is, is this even the Lord's will for me? Should I even be doing this? Maybe, maybe this is the Lord closing a door so that he can open another. Right? Those are the kinds of things that we think. Right? And, and those kinds of things could have been going on here were it not for the fact that God had already made abundantly clear, explicitly, over and over, that this was supposed to happen, right? I, the Lord your God, am giving you this land to possess, therefore go in and possess it, right? I, the Lord your God, will fight for you, over and over and over, right? We've seen, right? You've been here. So if they were unable to do it, What do we make of that? So I read a bunch trying to figure it out. I think Calvin was the most helpful here. He was not really kind about it. He said he called their failure effeminate. (laughs) Um, But here's what he had to say basically. If they failed to do the thing that God had promised over and over that he would do for them, then they simply gave up too soon. They just gave up. They gave up too soon. Sometimes tenacity is required to grab hold of the thing that God has promised. Sometimes some persistence is necessary, but unfortunately in failing to persist, what did Judah and Ephraim and Manasseh do? They sowed the seeds for their own destruction. Sometimes we've got to persist. So that was number one. That was partial obedience part two. Number two, God's strange sovereignty. Now, amid all these details, it is easy to miss the significance of some things along the way. I want to look again at chapter 16, verses 4 and 5. So we've got these allotments that are being made. And we have in verse 4... Manasseh mentioned first, and then Ephraim. And that makes sense, because Manasseh was the firstborn, and so you would logically mention the firstborn first. But then in verse 5, when it starts into the actual allotting of the land, it starts talking about, well, the territory of the people of Ephraim. So Ephraim gets listed first in the actual allotment. Now, is this just sloppiness on the part of the author? Or... Do we know something else about Ephraim and Manasseh? You've already read it in your Bible reading. I'm sure on the day that we read Genesis 48, right, it stuck with you. It clicked and you said, oh, right. But by knowing what we already know from Genesis 48, this wasn't a mistake at all. This wasn't sloppiness on the author's part. This is the author reinforcing what we find in Genesis 48. 
Now, you go read Genesis 48 on your own. Let me just summarize it briefly for you. So Israel, which is the new name for Jacob, if you will remember, is very near his death. And so his son Joseph brings his sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, to receive a blessing from grandfather before grandfather passes away. And Israel's eyesight is failing. And so Joseph brings the boys to him and places Manasseh under his right hand and Ephraim under his left hand, right? So Manasseh is the firstborn. The right hand is the place of honor. He's to get the better blessing. And so Israel opens his mouth and reaches out and crosses his hands so that his right hand is on Ephraim and not Manasseh. And so Joseph is thinking, oh, Daddy, you're losing it, right? It's not just your eyesight that's starting to slip. And so he reaches out and grabs his father's hands to try to switch them. And Israel says, no, I know what I'm doing. And he's giving the blessing, the better blessing, not to the firstborn Manasseh, but to Ephraim. And once again, we've got a picture of God's plan not being our plan. Of God defying human convention and doing something that to us seems backwards and even wrong. Sometimes what the Lord does is confusing to us. It goes against what we think is normal and right. Uh, I've benefited greatly from, from Dr. Davis's commentary on Joshua, and I love how he summed this up. There it is. It's just a reminder, another hint of Yahweh's strange ways. How often the divine way reverses the conventions of men overthrows the human canon of what ought to be. That's why the God of the Bible is so stimulating and refreshing. He is never the prisoner of what fallen man regards as normal. Again and again, he turns human standards on their heads, causing us to wonder and cheer. Friends, do we allow God to be God? Do we embrace his sometimes strange ways? Or do we run from them and try to explain them away? Too often I think we're imposing on him what makes sense to us. But we really need to check ourselves on a, on a pretty regular basis to see if we're imposing our standard, our sense of common sense onto what he can and can't do. Because let me tell you, he is always breaking convention, right? This is not the first time that the firstborn has had to take the back seat, and it won't be the last. God's ways are not our ways. Even, even think, about, think about these tribes. Think about Judah, right? From... The line of Judah comes our Savior. Well, Judah's not the firstborn. He's the fourthborn. And he's not even that 
great of a character, right? Genesis 38. I'm sure you remember from the day that we read Genesis 38 what a despicable character Judah was, and yet that's God's choice. The last will be first. He uses the foolish to shame the wise. He loves to use weakness instead of strength. His sovereignty is strange, but it's wonderful if we will allow him to be God. Number three, here's more repetition. This is good repetition, though. Bold faith, right? Bold faith. I love this interesting mention of Zelophehad's daughters. Now, we first learn about this situation in Numbers 27. There's something else you can go back and read on your own sometime. But basically, Zelophehad had five daughters and died without having a single son. And so, in the culture... In the time, property passes to sons, but not to daughters. And so the daughters here didn't like their prospects for the future without any inheritance. And so they go to Moses and they say, hey, can't we have an inheritance? Our daddy didn't have any boys. What about us? And so Moses said, hey, that's a good question. Let me inquire of the Lord. And so he does. And the Lord told Moses, yes, these daughters can receive their father's inheritance. And so now that they actually are in the promised land, many, many years later, this is what we see in verse 4. They've come to claim this promise. They've come to make good on it. They approached Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and leaders and said, the Lord commanded Moses. So think back to last week, Caleb's bold request out of chapter 14. And all the times, I showed you on a slide with it highlighted in red, all the, the different times that he was making an appeal to what God had said, what God had promised, God's Word. That was the basis of his bold claim. That's the basis of this claim by Zelophehad's daughters. The Lord commanded, and I'm going to hold you to it. So they do. Y'all, and this is a bold request for a number of reasons. Number one, because it's just been so many years since this promise was made, right? A lot of years have passed. A lot of years had passed for Caleb's promise that he went back and claimed. And the other thing is, this land is yet to be possessed, right? It hasn't been emptied of the folks that need emptying, but these daughters are speaking and making good on this promise with a sense of expectation as if it was a done deal already. They fully expect God to be faithful to his promise and to give them this land and to give them victory over the current occupants. Their faith is in God's promise and it's as good as done. They're not the least bit bashful to ask for it and to expect it. But what about us? What about you? What has God promised? Maybe even that many years have passed. Maybe something that seems really, really difficult and unlikely. Do we have such bold, expectant faith? Do we go back to God with His very promises? Do we go back to him and say, you said 
you promised. And hold God to his own words. Do we do that? I was, I was thinking this week, I was thinking of you guys just specifically, almost down through the directory, name by name. What example could I use to try to connect this to us? And the thing that, that I thought of from, from talking with many of you about it is that many of you have, have grown children or children who are nearly grown who aren't walking with the Lord. Right? And I know it weighs on you heavily. I know that you are agonizing over it in prayer many for, for years. You've done it for years. You're longing to see God make good on His covenant promises to be a God to you and to your children. That's His promise. That's what He said. And years have passed. So can I just encourage you this morning to be like Zelophehad's daughters, to be like Caleb, and to return back to God with his promise in hand and hold him to it. Persist in this. Persist in this good work. Don't give up. Don't be like Judah and Ephraim and Manasseh who, who didn't persist. Because we know this is God's promise. Cling tightly to it and return again and again to Him with His promise in hand and say, You said, and I'm going to keep bringing it back to you until you make good on it. It may be many years. It might not be in our timing. We need to persist. Number four, discontent. Started to call it whining because that's really what it is. These last verses of chapter 17. Joseph's people don't like their allotment and they're whining about it. They complain, we're such a great people. There are so many of us. Obviously, that's a sign of the Lord's blessing. And the land you've given us is too small. And so they complain to Joshua, but their beef is really with God. We didn't look at it specifically, but how's all this land being divvied up anyway? If you look at the very start of chapter 14, it's by lot. right? It's by lot. Lot, controlled by the sovereign hand of God, how all of this gets divvied up. So ultimately their beef is with, with God. So Joshua hears their whining, he receives their complaint, and he has a great response. Right? If you're so great, if there are so many of you, then it won't be any problem for you to clear out additional land adjacent to your allotment. Help yourself. Of course, they don't like that response. Because in verse 16, they essentially say, well, that's not enough land either. Even that's not enough. But then it's in the second half of verse 16 that we get to the real issue. 
right? Now we begin to see this discontent, this whining is actually doubt and distrust in disguise. They've got iron chariots. That's the real issue. They're really, really strong. We're afraid. But we're going to hide it behind our We're such a great people. We need more land, different land preferably, without the strong people in the iron chariots. Thank you. And Joshua responds to their fear, and he says, No, you will go in and clear the land. You are a numerous people. He says, No, you will drive them out even if they have iron chariots and even if they are strong Because Joshua knows this is the Lord's command. Over and over and over he said it. He knows it's the Lord's doing. He knows this is the same God that got them across the Jordan River. He knows it's the same God that caused the walls to come tumbling down. He knows that it's the same God who caused the sun to stand still in the sky for about a whole day. He can very easily take care of some iron chariots and some strong men. This reminder that Joshua gives in his command to the people is very similar to the reminder that we get when we come to the table time after time. It's very much like Joshua saying, though problems loom large for you, God's promise is greater. Though there are many things that cause you to doubt and fear and to forget the many, many times that God has been faithful to you in the past, grace is greater. It's a reminder that though we struggle with partial obedience, which is really disobedience, We struggle in failing to persist, to see it through to the end, to hold God to His promises. We struggle with all those things, yet we have a Savior who did persist. We have a Savior who did obey fully. We have a Savior who trusted His Father even in the very darkest hour. And His trust didn't waver that's our savior he obeyed fully he paid for our failures to persist he paid for all of our partial obedience he paid for all of our doubts he paid for all of the doubtings of our father which is sin and he paid for it and he's ready to meet us at the table and he's ready to give fresh Grace to give us the very faith that we need to trust the Father and to believe that His promises are true. Let's pray. Father, make us ready to feed on Christ. Make us mindful, though I bet many of us already are, of our partial obedience. Make us mindful of our failures to persist. Make us mindful of our very doubts 
Make us mindful of how we have grown weary of holding You to Your promises. And show us grace at the table. Meet us there with the grace that we need for all of those things. Strengthen our hearts. Nourish us. Feed us upon Christ Himself. We ask it in His name and for His sake. Amen. Please stand and let's sing in response and in preparation.